You're listening to a podcast from the Media Motel. Coming up this week in episode 539, Born Fighters, recording in the 70s with Nick Lowe and Dave Edmonds, we listen to three of the worst rock albums ever made, concert ticket holders staying at home, and the retirement of Coldplay. That's all coming up after Nick Lowe and Cruel to be Kind. After having one of his compositions placed on the 44 million copy selling soundtrack of the movie The Bodyguard, mm. uh, Nick Lowe is not short of a few, Bob. No. Uh, hugely underrated musician. This is from his second solo album, the, the subject of which we'll return to shortly. As a single, number 12, both in the UK and the Billboard Hot 100, from 1979, Nick Lowe and Cruel To Be Kind. That is such a great song, isn't it? And as we were saying just before we came on, Cruel To Be Kind, in the right measure. You can't you can't say one without the other, I don't think. No. It's one of those songs where I only have to hear it once and then it's all I hear for about a week. It's just a, a pop masterclass really is welcome to parish council episode 539 i'm terence stackham and here she is the modern day people's princess it's <laughs> juliet harris <laughs> do you know one thing i missed over the christmas break was your increasingly um inaccurate and some might say inappropriate introductions of who i am so it's very nice the, the pajama clad people's princess yes. as i currently am uh, within the new pajamas i got for christmas very Lovely. exciting it is me hi everyone hope you're well happy new year 
Rockpile were the supergroup who never really were. Ever-smiling mm. Billy Bremner, Terry Williams, Dave Edmonds and Nick Lowe, they, they recorded so much material that they could have released 10 albums, but only released one at the very tail end of their time together. And this was because Nick Lowe and Dave Edmonds had signed recording contracts mm. with different record companies and no compromise could be found. And... This led to the daft and confusing situation where the same band was recording at the same time in the same studio, two solo albums, one for Edmonds, <laughs> one for Lowe. And naturally, this led to both albums having a few really good tracks instead mm. of one brilliant album packed with hits. And this this whole imbroglio was captured by a film crew who made a documentary based entirely in Eden Studios in Kingston, as the two solo albums were created mm. in 1978, Nick Lowe's Labour of Lust and Dave Edmonds repeat when necessary. Jules, despite not even being born when all this was going on, <laughs> did you enjoy watching this documentary, Born Fighters? I did, yes. It, and uh, it wasn't something that I was familiar with. I mean, usually, although as, as you're always, bless you, quick to point out, I was not born when a lot of the stuff that we talk about on this no. podcast happened. Equally, I think my knowledge going backwards is usually pretty good. My tastes mm. are, are older than, than my, my age would necessarily indicate. Yeah, I didn't. Obviously, I knew Nick Lowe. I know and really like Nick Lowe. I have familiarity with Dave Edmonds. I think I knew that they worked together. I didn't know anything about Rockpile or this whole situation. So actually, I really enjoyed watching this because it was something that was new to me. Mm. Um, I thought it was very interesting. It did make me think, bless, as much as we absolutely loved Get Back, um, yeah. it wasn't quite as innovative as I thought it was in terms of this was just a sort of a, an, a fly on the wall documentary in mm. the studio that you got to see them, you know, sort of uh, um, rehearsing together. There was a voiceover, which there wasn't on, on Get Back. So it was a little bit more sort of obviously edited and, and manipulated. But having said that, I did enjoy watching this. I enjoyed seeing Nick Lowe and Dave Edmonds working together it did make me feel very sad that they fell out so badly because mm. I thought that they they seemed to work together so well on this and it was just it's just something really interesting and again similarity to, to get back about being immersed in the studio and you almost feel like you're sort of there with them watching them rehearse and, mm. uh, and record and I mean it does mean you get very very familiar with certain songs very quickly because it's all you hear <laughs> over and over again for about 20 minutes but no I very much enjoyed it I love the fact and again that similar to, to Billy Preston dancing in to get back I loved the appearance of Albert Lee and Dave mm. Evans basically like a child sat watching him you know just watching him enjoy Albert Lee's guitar playing was was really nice actually I, I thought this was a, a an interesting documentary recovering what as you say a very odd situation where they were effectively making two albums at once that had to be for different people but I enjoyed how they worked together I enjoyed how the you, you could definitely tell when it was Lowe's or Edmunds sort of in terms of who was mm. in charge um it made me feel bad for the rhythm section of Rockpile who are so talented in this they are so good and to be fair Niccolo and Dave Edmonds are always quick to say how good they are mm. and yet the dissolution of Rockpile because of the problem with Lowe and Edmonds sort of left the other two high and dry really and I'm sorry about that because they, all of the members in this came across really really well very talented musicians that were just able you know it's like someone clicks their fingers and they just rattle off this amazing sort of mm. you know intricate in some places Dave Edmonds guitar is just phenomenal and and it's it's really I've, you know, it, I found, you know, knowing what happened afterwards, because of course I looked into it afterwards. Mm. No, afterwards, I felt I, that that made me feel sad because it was such a great documentary that was full of energy and full of people that were serious about what they were doing, working together well. And it's just such a shame that that couldn't be continued really. But I thought this was a very immersive look it got the balance right it was made for Granada I noticed at mm. the end obviously it was made for a slightly more mainstream audience and Nick Lowe made the point I thought well that you know people have an idea of how records are made but equally I thought it was a quite a good primer for if you don't know anything about that it explains some of the tr double tracking and things like that without necessarily being too you know sort of bbc news round i yeah. thought it was quite a good kind of mid-level introduction for people that might be interested in music but might not know very much about how it's made so i like this i thought it was very good
I found it absolutely absorbing from the opening shots of Lowe and Edmonds sitting opposite each other in a very 1970s rehearsal room. Yes. But it was like Lennon and McCartney 20 years before who yeah. used to sort of write sitting opposite each other the same way. But this rehearsal room really amused me and the control room of the mm. studio with its awful 1970s sofas. And oh, the, yeah. the, <laughs> these rooms were stacked almost to the ceiling with packs of senior service cigarettes, which I forgot you, yes. you, know, you they were like the cheap end of the cigarette mm. market in the 70s and cans of lager. It was a fascinating insight into the analogue, real-to-real world of the recording process in 1978. And um, yes, Albert Lee. I mean, if you blinked and you, you, you if mm. you blinked, you missed cameo appearances from Graham Parker, Huey Lewis was there, Albert mm. Lee, and for a few short seconds, Phil Lynott in the control room. Yes, it seemed obvious to me, and it kind of did at the time as well. That Rock Pile, they they really could have been a huge band, but they yes. needed a producer. They sort of allowed themselves to sort of self-produce, like Dave Edmonds would produce Nick Lowe, and Nick Lowe would yeah, exactly. Dave Edmonds, and they needed really a different manager to Jake Riviera, and they really could have been much more successful. Yeah, um, absolutely. The weirdness of the same band recording in the same studio, but putting out two different albums on different labels with different names, <laughs> was ne- it was just sort of never overcome. And they even appeared on top of the Pops with exactly the same band wearing exactly the same clothes, mm. but under each other's solo names. Yes. Uh, very peculiar. It also, as you mentioned, foretold the long hiatus of when Lowe and Edmonds didn't really work yes. together for years and we it, we, we see a sort of little soupçon of, mm. um, of what's to come because Dave Edmonds has this like fatherly stance towards Nick Lowe. Nick yes. Lowe says my whole life is inspired by gloom. Yes and, that long conversation. Yeah, that, that, yeah, that, that reminded me yeah. of Mel Smith and Griff Rhys-Jones you know yes. where they do those conversations opposite each other uh, in Smith and Jones and um I mean, they did. They did reconcile. Um, oh, and, and, uh, uh, pals again now, and they've appeared on each other's recordings since. But um, that, as you as you say, that then did leave rather Billy Bremner and Terry Terry Williams a bit bit high and dry. Billy Bremner went on. I if I remember correctly, went on to work with the Pretenders. I was going to say and, he went on to play for Leeds, didn't he? But I think uh, that's a different yeah, Billy Bremner, isn't it? In the 1970 FA Cup final, the against Chelsea. Yes. No, no, yes, two Billy Bremners. Most uh, disconcerting <laughs> for. For, for probably both of them yeah mm. no fasc- a fascinating film it, it seems to pop up in places and then mm. disappear again at the time of recording uh born fighters is free on youtube and it's also available through bfi mm. coming next we listen to three of the worst rated rock albums <laughs> of all time so you don't have to really that's next after a track from those 1978 Eden Studio sessions this one from the Dave Edmonds album
recorded with exactly the same band as mm. the Diplo track earlier. This was the opening uh, track to his album Repeat When Necessary. As a single, number 65 in America, number four in the UK, Dave Edmonds and Girls Talk. And that's, of course, a version of the Costello number. It's one of those incidences I really like like it when someone writes a song, they give it to someone else who records it, and then the original person goes, oh, do you know what? I actually do quite like that song, and I would like to record it myself, because Costello went on to record his own version as a B-side, which I like very much, actually. I like both versions of that. But, but yeah, it's just, like you say, it's just so surreal, isn't it, really? It's uh, meet the new band, same as the old band. But but I'm sorry that we don't... It's not we don't see Dave Edmonds very much around nowadays because an incredibly talented person. Although, as you say, that conversation that him and Nick Lowe have towards the end of the documentary, and it's, you know, who knows how, how, these, how heavily these things are edited, but it was telling that it's sort of at the end, mm. this kind of, you say, this foreshadowing of kind of, dun, 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 of what's going to come. But when you hear him in that conversation, it's not hugely surprising that, you know, he struck me as someone who was willing to make a bit of money and then sort of pop off, really. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. I'm not I'm not that surprised that he lived his life slightly more quietly, shall we say. But anyway, nice to hear that again. Yeah. We all know the hullabaloo every time a top 100 or 500 mm. or 1,000 albums of all time list is published. Uh, the top 10 will inevitably include Rumours, Revolver, Hotel California, what's going on. But what about the other end of the scale? Those albums that are just about universally panned <laughs> yes. on release, and particularly those by major artists. Some are swept under the carpet, never referred to again. While some artists, they, they try to stick it out and carry the line that it's us, the public, that are out of step. And the maligned album was visionary, ahead of its time, and should have gone platinum. This week, we're, we've been listening to three such albums, huge artists, terrible reviews. How do these albums sound now, years later? Lou Reed's last album was in 2011 and was a link up with Metallica. It did moderately well on release, reaching number 36, both in the States and here in the UK. Lulu is the album. It's a double and centers around Lou Reed speaking over instrumentals created by Metallica. Pitchfork gave it one out of ten, calling it exhaustingly tedious. Uh, let's hear a short clip from the album Lulu. I am the view. I am the table. I am the view. I am the table. I am all this. I am the root. The progress. The aggressor. Jules, were Pitchfork right to allocate one out of ten to Lulu? Well, firstly, I wish we'd actually listened to Lulu, the artist herself. Yes. I, was, I got a bit excited when you said it. Then I thought, oh, we're going to listen to Lulu. Oh, no, wait, it's not that Lulu. It's an yeah. album called Lulu. Um, it reminds me of, I'm a big fan of the Adrian Mole books by, two, by Sue oh, Townsend. Yeah. If you're not familiar, I would very much recommend from start to finish actually reading them because they in their own quiet way, tell a sort of story of Britain. She's extremely good at, at, at social observation. But there's a scene in one of the early books where Adrian Mole is still at school and his parents attend the Christmas concert. I think the implication is slightly inebriated. And mm. his mum asks Adrian Mole when the orchestra is going to stop tuning up, to which he <laughs> tells her that they have, in fact, just played Mozart's horn concerto in D. And I didn't, I didn't feel entirely dissimilar with this. The whole thing Thing felt a little bit like a record with a spoken word, a song with a spoken word introduction. You think, oh, okay, well, they'll do the spoken word introduction and and then it, and then it will get going. And it didn't. It just, every single song just stopped. I, it's, it's the sort of arty nonsense that a small part of me is kind of on board with. But I really dislike Metallica. Anybody that's heard me on this this podcast recently, aside from, or, or ever, I think, aside from, from Enter Sandman, I've always found Metallica very overrated. Um, Lou Reed, I think, is capable of genuine brilliance. But equally, much like you were saying earlier, it often overindulges himself and is overindulged mm. and it did not make for a winning combination for me I must say 
No, I mean, I was determined to give this a fair listen, but in the mm. end, the relentlessness of one man's sort of <laughs> huge ego-driven vanity project made yeah. me feel sorrow for anyone, particularly Metallica fans, who bought this unheard. Yes, it is truly absolutely, dreadful. absolutely. A it's one of those an... records, records which, you know, like you say, in the olden days, you can imagine in 1975 running to the shop to buy it and yes. then the feeding when you get home. Sorry, carry on. No, it's okay. It's just, you know, it's, you know, he's got Lou Reed on this particular album, an awful voice, shot to pieces. Mm. He's rambling, muttering, shouting over a, oh, a hideous sub heavy metal noise. Yes. Really terrible. On, on Spotify, you can see the number of plays for each track dwindle as people work <laughs> through the album. Oh, wow. Really okay. That, that tells its own story, doesn't it? Excellent factoiding. Thanks, Sati. Second in our trio of albums with historically awful reviews and reputations comes The Clash and an album Joe Strummer wanted to forget as soon as it was released and the reviews came thudding in. It was right at the end of the band's life and was called Cut the Crap, which kind of ironically, it did the exact (laughs) opposite, really. Um, here's Here's a brief clip. years after combat rock clash fans were still loyal and cut the crap still managed Mm. to reach number 16 in the uk 88 in the states does it merit better reviews all these years later well i think it's quite funny that it's called cut the crap and actually quite a lot of this is crap isn't it (laughs) really i mean i really like the clash so i gave this perhaps a fairer hearing than i otherwise Mm. would have done with lou reed and metallica because i don't like metallica but I just got I just got the impression listening to this it felt really contractual it felt a little bit you know what why why are we here why why have you made this why am I listening to this I wouldn't I I think it's worse in a way than it being or there's only one thing for me that's worse than being completely awful and that's it just felt really perfunctory and that was yeah, in a way even so worse I think than being really bad you, it just feels like a band going through the motions I wouldn't say it was awful but having said that it is awful but because when you think about how good the clash were it's not it's like you say it's a very sad swan song for a band that are, that are excellent because it's just it's just not very good i mean it's not awful it's worse than being awful it's just not very good and that in a way is is even more upsetting yeah i mean essentially this album was completed by session musicians with joe yeah. strummer singing over the top and it's produced and mixed abysmally by mm. manager bernie rhodes I think there are two half-decent tracks on it. This is England and North and South. The rest of it sounds like... It sounds... What it made me think was like a Clash parody band... But practicing mm. in dustbins because of the terrible sound quality. Sound is yeah. just terrible. And it's a sad ending to the Clash in their recording career. Well, finally, another album that uh, showed certainly in, in, in the past in an era where you couldn't preview them music on on spotify and elsewhere that fans could be incredibly loyal to artists they loved um david bowie's rather odd project of band democracy tin machine reached number 28 on billboard and number three in the uk before it dropped away really really Mm. quickly when i think the reviews made people think twice david bowie always had an unusual approach to lyrics but for the tin machine album he decided to ad lib the lyrics on the spot reviews broadly were very poor john savage said he didn't understand it he said the album was ugly and macho q magazine said it was like allowing your head to be used as a punch bag <laughs> here's a clip from tim machine Did Tin Machine have you reaching for the paracetamol? I mean, it's quite intense, isn't it? I don't think I was quite expecting it to be as intense as it was. I started listening in headphones and then listened to the rest on my Bluetooth speaker because I couldn't quite handle it in headphones. Mm. Um, 
I mean, I have the most time for it out of the three records that we heard, but part of me wonders if that's because I've got the most time for Bowie out of the, the three artists that, that we, as much as I like The Clash. Um, I don't, I mean, I didn't hate this, hate this, but I'd be lying if I told you that I was rushing to pull it off the shelf to listen to it again, <laughs> I must admit. And actually, it's an inter- It's interesting it's an interesting curio in the history of Bowie as an artist, actually. It, if you look at it in the kind of the context of where he was going, actually, his he did this, and then he did the second Tim Machine record, and then he did um, Black uh, White Black Tie White Noise, which I actually really like as an album. That is, again, often much unloved, but I rather like that. So I suppose in terms of novelty value and a kind of an idea of where Bowie's head was then, it is an interesting listen. Uh, there were parts of it which I thought were starting to lean to was acceptable but the ad-libbing the ad-libbing of lyrics it, it it did it sounded pretty chaotic didn't it really and again the tending towards the indulgent it is a little bit why are you doing this on my time I must admit although I, I don't I don't I don't dis I can't bring myself to dislike it as much as the other two although maybe that is just nostalgia for Bowie on my part we seem to be pretty much of an accord here because I think Tin Machine like you, is the least worst of yes. the three albums we've featured. There are some awful tracks, particularly the title track, but individually, yes. some of the tracks tracks are reasonably listable. And it's yes. a shame some of the lyrics are so throwaway. A little bit yes. more effort would, would would have made a difference. It's just, it's just listening to the album as a whole. It feels a bit relentless and mm-hmm. desperately underworked. Prisoner of Love, uh, a track on it sounds a bit like classic Bowie. It was a, the, yes. clip, the clip we heard. Um, classic Bowie, but with a it's just, it's just like muddy Guns and Roses backing him. It's a little bit half-arsed, isn't it, really? And yeah. that's what's so frustrating about it. Had, As you say, had it been made properly, it probably would have been quite good. But it just it sounds a little bit just thrown off, doesn't it, really? The Nadir is reached with a with, with a totally pointless and noisy version of John Lennon's working class hero. Yes, I, um, I didn't understand grim. what they were doing no. with that. Why why bother? <laughs> Overall, it's not perhaps as terrible as as remembered, but uh, mm. I'm confident I'll never play it again. Yes. Um, Mm. Coming right up. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> yeah. I, I, we would tell you where you can get these records, but we won't because I no. don't think you should. <laughs> no, I wouldn't worry about it. Coming right up, <laughs> buying gig tickets but staying at home, mm. and Coldplay's retirement plan. That's next after Linda Ronstadt.
one of the big things of listening to music in lockdown for me has been that because of the whole general pandemic situation, I I care less about what anybody else thinks of me than I have done at any point in time. And it's really nice just to be able to say that I really like Linda Rodstad and not worry that that makes me feel uncool or anything like that. Um, I think she's so underrated. As, as this really marks me out of being the age I am, the generation I am. I first came across Linda Rodstad in her enjoyable, enjoyably bizarre guest appearance in the Mr. Plough episode of The Simpsons where she and Barney decide to make a record together but um, so so uh, much like Tito Puente and my ex-boss um, he hadn't realised that Tito Puente actually existed in real life he thought he'd just been made up for The Simpsons and I think a lot of me felt like that about Linda Rodstad for a couple of years but um, no I really like that actually You're No Good by Linda Rodstad. What I love about Linda Rodstad's version is there's an air of of disquiet and dread mm. about her vocal and the production by Peter Asher and the album it comes from Heart Like a Will 10 tracks 31 minutes mm. uh, that, that's my kind of album I love it just bang them out and, and, and leave <laughs> yes absolutely I agree I watch a lot of football and for English Premier League mm. games since the return of fans to the stadium we, we've become used once again to the sight of packed grounds with all the accompanying atmosphere but recently in the last month or so it's been it's been noticeable that even at the biggest games, the TV cameras are picking up dotted about sizable numbers of seats, usually in twos and fours in the areas perhaps taken up by members or season ticket holders that are empty, clearly seats that have been paid for. But the people haven't turned up. Do they have the virus? Are they perturbed by the mm. possibility of infection and just staying away through caution? Don't know. But this week, the Wall Street Journal noted a similar experience at music gigs. Recently, Flaming Lips, Billy Joel and the Eagles played to houses with 20% no-shows, despite the venues being sold out. And some British promoters have been have been experiencing up to 40% no-shows uh, of people who had tickets they've paid. For decades, um, Jules, I've said that mm. I really don't like buying tickets for any gig or sporting occasion or theatre, opera, more than a week or so ahead. It gives mm. me the heebie-jeebies. Yeah. So maybe I'm a visionary, um, but I wonder <laughs> if we're seeing a total change of lifestyle and more and more people are finding out that staying home is quite an attractive alternative. Well, it's interesting, this, isn't it? Yeah, like you, it's it's we seem to hit sort of, we hit, peak just before the pandemic we hit peak tickets selling out millions of years mm. in advance the big sellers like ed sheeran and adele and people like that who and the glad the idea of if, if you don't get on a phone line for three hours on the morning that glastonbury tickets go on so you can't get one so so in a way I like you. I, I hope we move towards a more spontaneous way of life. Having said that, it's interesting this. I I actually think that that, that if that in this time, if you've paid for a ticket and you don't turn up, there is the point that, of course, if you don't turn up for a show, you're not spending money at the bar. You're not perhaps mm. not buying a T-shirt or anything. Like that. Having mm. said that, my view on this is COVID isn't going away. We know this. Having said that, it doesn't stop being dangerous. I think if you feel unwell, you shouldn't go to a show. And actually, not asking for your money back, paying for the show but not going to it because you're either unwell or or you're you know you're worried about crowds and things. I wonder if that's the best medium because the person that you're play that you're going to see still gets the income from your ticket, which they wouldn't do if you haven't bought it in the first place if you decided not to turn up and you were going to buy a ticket on the door or, you know, or you felt ill and you wanted to get your money back. In a way, I wonder if people that are no-showing are, in a way, being responsible in, and, and doing their bit to maintain live music infrastructure for if slash when slash big if things ever become sort of normal and workable again. Because, you know, I, I think that... that you know that 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 our government certainly here in britain seems to be moving towards oh we've all just got to live with the covid general policy on this and actually i think that it is the right thing to do if you're feeling unwell or you know, or that sort of thing even if you haven't tested positive to try and minimize infecting other people of things and i think to do that while still you know basically effectively writing off your money for the ticket 
I think that's a responsible thing to do. I think in this weird situation that we're in, that is possibly the best of all worlds. I don't know if this is an indicator of people not wanting to go to things, as you say, people thinking staying in is better. It'd be interesting to see. I don't think this has been going on for long enough for us to be able to draw a firm conclusion at the moment, whether it is that, as you say, whether it's just that people are still feeling pretty, pretty dicey. The rates have rocketed over here in the UK over the last couple of months. So maybe it's maybe it's that. I don't know. But in a way, I think, well, if you do want to go to a show, we must continue to support live music if we want it to still be a thing in a couple of years' time. But part of me thinks, well, maybe that's the best way of proceeding at the moment. If you're not sure about going, don't go. But let let the sort of ticket, you know, let your money stay in in the infrastructure, really. I think that's my view. I wonder. This may be a bit sort of going a bit outlandish, but you know how <laughs> you, parents, I'd like yeah, that I mean, one, yeah. unusual, isn't it? But um, you know how some restaurants uh, complain that they get no shows because what people do is they book. Yeah. Um, well, that is a tables, right, I don't think. Book tables yeah. at say five or six different restaurants. This is particularly prevalent in London, and then they decide at the last minute which one they're going to go to. <sighs> that's that's not really up. not good, and that's why I think I would be happy to pay a deposit for a for a yes, meal at a restaurant personally. I, I just wonder if there's an element creeping in. Of course, the pandemic, but also mm. creeping in of people like if you've got pots of money mm. you know just think oh let's book to go and see whoever um you yeah. know whatever band um, yeah. insert name here and then on the day you know you're not a massive fan but you think oh that that might be good or you mm. know early in the new year or something and then on the day you just think nah can't be bothered you know it's a, mm. it's raining out um you know it's it's not very pleasant weather got a bit of a headache where you and i would think oh i've booked tickets to, you know, yeah, to exactly. pj harvey or todd runger and say oh i've got to go yes. But, you know, people just think, nah, can't be can't be bothered with that. I don't know. I mean, of course, I do understand, for example, supporters of Arsenal and Tottenham preferring to stay home, even if they have tickets. I mean, that's, you know, that's mm. understandable. But I feel like there's an obvious and significant change in the modern era. Um, this is in a little broader sense now. And that, that life at home a generation ago was essentially boring. And going to a gig or a football match was a welcome break from that on we mm. but now we have every music track yeah, recorded maybe, at our maybe, fingertips we yeah. can watch more or less any tv show or movie instantly we can watch any football match instantly we can find information and communicate in the blink of an eye maybe staying at home and that we've learned to do over the last two years is now the new going out quite possibly so maybe it is that like you say and maybe Maybe if you're, if you, you know, may, maybe if you have to miss a gig or if you're not feeling great or if you're a bit anxious, you think maybe there is that element of, oh, well, we'll just stay at home and watch a film yeah. instead. Or, or yeah, and, you know, there's more choice now of films than there's ever been, partly because people don't want to go to cinema. So stuff is being released mm. online much more often. Maybe there is an element of that. And maybe it's that that will make this hard to reverse. I don't know. That's a really good point also not going out so much at least to the recording studios and apparently from the year 2025 <laughs> are the band Coldplay it did seem a bit strange that Chris Martin turned up on the Joe Wiley show on BBC Radio 2 last week to share what he called a huge revelation that they plan to make no more recordings after mm. 2025 it seems a bit odd that a group only in their mid 40s um, would make such a decision and to announce it four years in advance is a bit peculiar I'm no Coldplay hater I, I like them very much um, do you think Coldplay will stick to this semi-retirement strategy Jules it's, an, it's very interesting isn't it for people to say you know we're going to stop this in four years time mm. that's I mean in a way it kind of part of me really admires me and as you know again as regular listeners though I love Coldplay unashamedly so as well and I often get teased mm. for it but I don't care I love them I think they're a great band mm. but um I there's part of me that thinks of this well this is why lots of people I think find Coldplay difficult particularly nowadays because hmm. there's something a little bit corporate about this isn't there mm, there's something mm. of the five-year plan about it there's something of the kind of the oh well we project that we will stop you know we will stop in 2025 yes, there's point. something a little bit cynical about it isn't there and I, I you know I like Chris Martin I don't think he is cynical but there's something about it that's a mm. little bit sort of you know oh well you better go and see us while you can and you better buy our records while you can because we're going to stop oh 
afterwards. Um, be interested to see if they do stick to it. They're the sort of band that will, I think. I think mm. they will. I, I, I think that they will do as they say. Um, it's, it's, it introduces a new idea. The idea of, of, you know, there's something that's unartistic about it. To go with the cynicism point, this idea. Oh, but what if you suddenly have a purple patch in 2025 when you're about to retire and you're writing songs? You think, oh, this is fantastic. It's it's sort of slightly anti-create the creative process, isn't it? Really, it's it's this idea that you can switch it on and off that you can turn a tap on and off it rather divorces from them from sort of any natural um creative rhythms and it rather reinforces the sort of album tour album tour cycle Mm. that a lot of bands get themselves locked into and then ultimately it makes them disillusioned and uncreative and kind of drives them out the business really it's I don't know. I find this. I'm, I do find this quite strange, actually. As much as I like Coldplay, I find this idea that you're going to cut off when you're going to do things. Who knows? It might have the opposite effect. It might make them super creative because you know that you're running out of time. But equally, pinning yourself into certain parameters does not feel incredibly creative to me. I must admit. No, and why announce it? I mean, if that's the way you're feeling at the moment in twenty, well, late twenty twenty one, why announce it? Why not just sort of say to you know, well, lads, um, let's yeah, see if we still I'm feel thinking, the same yeah, in twenty twenty five, and then we can talk about it. Because I've got the feeling that even if they stick to it, that come twenty thirty or something, you know, Chris Martin and the other chaps are saying, I've got, I've got, I've got about three or four really great songs here. Oh, yeah, exactly. We, 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 you know, we can't record them. You know, they, that's not going to happen, is it? They're going to say, well, let's just go and do it. But what we must now call the Coldplay strategy, it, on <laughs> the other hand, makes a form of sense to me. But I'm guessing that it's probably not the reason why they've made it. Um, if you go to see the Rolling Stones, Fleetwood Mac, uh, Paul McCartney, the Eagles, all you want is a greatest hit set. You f- you feel Probably, all momentum yeah. drop if a heritage artist says, oh, we're going to play a couple of songs from our new album now. And you can always yes. feel the air go out of the, uh, out the stadium. So if Coldplay continue to tour or appear at festivals every five years or so and play just the greatest hit set, mm. Perhaps that's it. That's a, that's yeah. a good step and, and doesn't dilute their heritage, of course. Quite possibly. Yes, that's a really good point. I hadn't really thought of that. But yeah, may, maybe it's that. And if they don't do it too often, people will be pleased to see them again, won't they? Yeah, exactly. uh, uh, of course, if they do it every two or three years, that's a very that's a very different thing. But no, that, that that's a very good point. It'd be interesting to see if they're still interested in them when there isn't new material. And that I guess the question to that, a bit like McCartney and, and the hit sets, is are your classic songs classic enough not to need to be added to? Mm. So a classic um, um, realisation of this, uh, it was uh, 2013, I saw Ray Davis of the Kings mm. topping the bill in Hyde Park. And it, it, was, it was almost clockwork because every time he said, OK, gonna, this is a number I wrote um, earlier this year. Everybody sat down. Then oh, the, the next track, you'd hear dum da dum da dum the opening bars of Waterloo Sunset. Everybody's up in the air. Whoa. And then, you know, say, thanks very much, Waterloo Sunset. Great memories there. Now, another new track, everybody sit yes. down. So, you know, it, it really does work like that. Thanks very much for listening this week. Lovely to have you along. Yes, I echo the sentiments of my esteemed colleague. Someone else continuing to play live is Juliet Lucy Harris. It's me, yes. Well, playing live as in... continuing other people's music yes it's going to play other other people that would be uh that would be great so um so yes i'm very much looking forward to doing that again back on the old air again um mixler.com mixlr.com forward slash juliet hyphen harris or just search my name on mixler i go live on sunday evenings from seven till nine doing smooth sailing which is you know classics rather than new material by and large although occasionally uh, smooth sounding new records sneak in um if you miss it more, more and- linda ronstein than tin machine yes absolutely we very much tend towards the linda end of the of the spectrum um if you if you miss it and want to catch up there's a little show reel button on my page and you can hear all the previous smooth sailings if you have many voyages you want to go on they're there for you a track from the most recent chemical brothers album to play us out yeah absolutely and this is one of the one of their better records i think and actually in its own strange way you wouldn't necessarily think of the chemical brothers as a political band but this album was released in 2019 and for me 
kind of summed up a lot of the political mood of that year really it's in i would recommend that you have a listen to it and see see how you get on with it they they played it in support of it at glastonbury in 2019 the last normal glastonbury for now it would seem and it is very much worth trying to find their set online if you can because it's absolutely fantastic possibly one of the best ever that i've watched on tv i think it was so so good so they they had some stunning visuals with it and it was really really good i love this album i think it's brilliant and they're always quite good i think at closing albums the chemical brothers they always come up with a, a brilliant sort of epic to close and um, this features a singer-songwriter called stephanie dozen who uh, pops up on their record sometimes and who is great i would recommend that you check out her uh, her her you know sort of place uh, records and that sort of thing but this is very this kind of sums up the uncertain mood i think that a lot of us still find ourselves in a new year but the same old anxieties in some senses it would seem this is the chemical brothers with stephanie dozen and this is Catch me, I'm falling. In a definite twilight, we're in our finery. I'm in your arms, and you're inside of me, me, me. And then when you go, where will you go? I promise that I love you to you. Thank you. 
listening to a Parish Council production. <laughs> <laughs>